Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now, if you're looking for a church home, a place to connect with other believers, to serve together, to grow together, we'd love for you to visit us at Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and you can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com. Call us at 479-442-4634 or email us at info at Calvary. On today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is sharing a message from our series on the church entitled, The Church You've Always Wanted. Today's message is taken from Acts chapter 16. Let's listen together. Last week I asked you if you wanted Calvary Baptist Church to be a museum for saints or a hospital for sinners. The idea was to give you at least a mental picture from which you can uh, draw some conclusions. As a museum for saints, which many churches are today, as you know, a museum focuses on the past. It's very nostalgic believing that the best days are the days behind us, not the best days being before us. Museums are safe, surrounded by relics of the past. Many churches try to be like this, following Christ in a somewhat unreal world, as one person put it, seeking to answer questions nobody's asking anymore. That's kind of what it's like to be a museum for saints. In contrast, some churches are more like hospitals for sinners, where the focus is not on the past, but it's on the present. And it's planning for a future, seeking a better day ahead, utilizing the best tools and resources available, dealing with life and death, birth and healing, living in a very real world, navigating change while holding on to eternal truths and principles, dealing with people where they live, where they experience their hurts and their habits and their hang-ups and seeking to resolve those issues with the truth of the gospel. I hope you desire for Calvary to be more like a hospital for sinners than a museum for saints. Well, let me give you another word picture today, and you've heard this one before, perhaps. Do you want Calvary to be more like a cruise ship or a battleship? More like a pleasure cruise or more like a battleship on a dangerous mission? You know the difference. Many of you have been on cruises. Let's go ahead and put the picture up go, to get in the spirit of it, all right? You've been on cruises before. You know what it's like. It caters to the clients, to those who are paying the way, to the members. It's all about me and you. It's pleasure-focused. It's safe. It indulges the senses with food and entertainment and all kinds of things that, that make the trip 
more fun. Many churches try to be like cruise ships, offering something for everyone. But in contrast to that, God intended his church to be more like a battleship. Let's change the picture. It's there to not meet the needs of you and me only, but to meet the needs of others. Its focus is entirely on the mission, not our personal desires. It's equipped and prepared for battle and for warfare. Everyone has a station. Everyone has a place to serve. And it goes not just to safe ports, pleasurable places. It goes to unsafe places and to unsafe waters. Which do you want Calvary Church to be? Which is the best picture of the Lord's church and of our church? A museum or perhaps a cruise ship or a hospital for sinners, a battleship? Well, I hope and pray that the answer is clear to you what God's Word teaches us and what God has to say to us. I'm convinced that first church we read about in the book of Acts was a church that was a hospital for sinners. It was a church that was a battleship going on a mission into unsafe places because of the gospel that had changed our lives. And this is the key truth we've been working off of the last few weeks. It is the fact that the early Christians and their leaders were gospel-shaped people. And because they were gospel-shaped people, they turned their world upside down. Those are the words not of those that were complimenting them, but those who were complaining about them. They were changing the world with the message of Jesus Christ. Now, Acts chapter 16 is but one example of how that took place when the gospel came to town. And the town we're talking about specifically in the occasion is the gospel coming to a city by the name of Philippi, which is the first place that the gospel was preached in Europe. Now, if you remember the text and you remember what we talked about last week, the very first convert, we read about three converts in the city of Philippi, though no doubt there were others. But three we read about, and convert number one was a determined businesswoman whose name was Lydia. We talked about her last week in verses 11 through 15, and we'll not reread those verses, but let me just kind of remind you what took place in the story of Lydia. Lydia was a woman with a tender heart. The Bible says she was a worshiper of God. But understand this, even though she was a worshiper of God, even though she had embraced Judaism as a religion to follow, she was not a saved woman. She, if we put this in today's context, she was a person who came to church, 
She was a person who, who would be faithful to church and to even to prayer meetings and other church events and worship service, but she had never come to a place of committing her life to Jesus Christ as her Savior. And even though she had a tender heart for God and the things of God and the Old Testament scriptures, she wasn't any closer to heaven than was the hardened sinner we'll read about in just a little bit. She had a tender heart. Now, what was she doing in Philippi? She was a businesswoman. She was actually from Thyatira, some 300 miles away. She was there because of opportunity. She had uh, the opportunity to make a dollar. Well, the apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke These four missionaries came to Philippi because of obedience, because there was a chance to make some disciples. They had never intended to go there, but God led them there through some providential circumstances, and for the first time, the gospel came to Europe and from Europe to you and me in America. The power of her conversion was the gospel. The Bible says the Lord opened her heart. The power of conversion is from God, and the power of conversion is through the gospel. And we see the proof of her conversion in verse 15. We see her heart. She was baptized. She was moved to obedience. We see her home. She led her household to Christ. You look at her humility, her hospitality, her hunger to know more. And so we see the proof of conversion in her life, proofs that ought to be true in your life and in mine as well. So that was convert number one, Lydia, a woman with a tender heart. We see convert number two beginning in verse 16, and this is where we begin our reading today. And this is a convert, the conversion of a demonized girl. A demonized girl. The scripture in the Greek refers to her as a damsel. She wasn't a child. She wasn't an adult woman. She was probably a teenager. I was going to call this point a demonized teenager. But that would cause some confusion. Because some of you believe that all teenagers are demonized. Can I get an amen to that? No. They just all act like it sooner or later at times. But there is a difference, and we see it beginning in verse 16. Paul says, or Luke says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. This is the wow part of this story. Here's this demon-possessed teenage girl who is following these missionaries around Philippi, this Roman 
colony, this place where there were so few Jews. The reason that Lydia and the women were meeting down by the river for their prayer meeting is because there was no Jewish synagogue for Jewish followers to go and to worship and to pray. According to the uh, the traditions of the Jews at this time. To have a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 men, 10 male Jews to have a synagogue. This was a Roman colony that very likely was prejudiced against Judaism, did not have hardly any Jews living there except perhaps a handful of women who had to go down by the riverside about a mile away from the city in order to pray. So when it says we were going to the place of prayer uh, after several days, this was probably at least one week after the conversion of Lydia that they were going now on the next Sabbath day again to the place of prayer. But this slave girl, in the meantime, had been following them around. She had a spirit of divination. They had, she had a, a demon living inside her. And this demon was a powerful demon and could cause her to predict the future and evidently to do so accurately, not like the charlatans and fortune tellers you read about today. Have you ever wondered why you never read about a modern-day fortune teller winning the lottery? Well, it's the same reason you don't ever see or hear about modern-day faith healers or pastors walking the halls of the hospitals and healing people there either. It's because they are fakes. They are charlatans. But understand, there is such a thing as true demon possession. And it's powerful and it's real. And in the case of this girl, it evidently gave her the ability or the demon working through her could predict certain things about the future enough so that it was making a lot of money from the men who owned her. This was definitely um, a case of human trafficking, but it was for making money through this demon-possessed girl. Now, the question that is obvious here is this, and I know that you're wondering about it and asking it already. If she was speaking the truth, if she was following them around town declaring these men are servants of the Most High God, if she is doing that, and who are proclaiming the way of salvation, and she's saying that, why did Paul, why did he become annoyed about that? And why did he cast the demon out of her? Well, let me give you a little background. If you read the Gospels, and you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find that some of the first people to ever declare Jesus as the Son of God during the course of his ministry were demon-possessed people. For instance, you have the demon-possessed man at Gadara, 
a man who was so powerful that they had chained him up many times, but he just broke the chains and he tormented and terrorized the people of the countryside. And when Jesus came to Gadara, the demons inside him declared Jesus as the Son of God. And you'll notice that whenever this happened in the Gospels, anytime a demon-possessed person declared Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus always told them to shut up. Jesus always cast the demons out of them. He had no desire to be declared to be who he was by a demon. Well, keep a couple of things in mind. As I've already said, demonic power is real. This girl had it. The other demon-possessed people of Scripture expressed in different ways were controlled by powerful evil spirits. The demons are the fallen angels that used to serve the Most High God in heaven but had been cast out because they followed Satan, Lucifer, in his heavenly rebellion against God. They now are the demons that roam the earth. Now keep this in mind about those demons. They are directly opposed to Jesus. They are directly opposed to his church. They are directly opposed to his missionaries to his evangelists, to his preachers, and they are directly opposed to you. If they are given the power, they will destroy you. If given the liberty to do so by God, they will wreck and destroy your marriage, your family, this church. If demons cannot keep you out of heaven, and by the way, if you're a lost person today, if you've never put your faith in Christ, then you are subject to their power and their influence. But if they cannot keep you out of heaven, they want to do everything they can to destroy your life, your testimony, your message as a child of God. So this girl, keep this in mind, though she was declaring these men are servants of the Most High God, and they are preaching the way of salvation. Understand that though she said that, it does not mean that she understood it as a teenage girl. The demon was doing the speaking, not her. Not only that, but we don't know for sure that this was a true message the demon was declaring. For you and I know that they were servants of the Most High God, but what about the people who lived in Philippi that heard her going around saying this? To those people who followed the Roman gods, when they heard her say, these men are servants of the Most High God, no doubt they thought of Zeus. Or they thought of Apollo. Or they thought of some other mythological God, not the one true God of the universe. But even if they did acquaint it with Yahweh, the one and only God of heaven and earth, if they did, 
understand that the intention of this demon was not to enhance the ministry of the apostle Paul, but it was to hinder it. And listen to me, this is the way the devil works. Sometimes he will tell you 100 truths in order to gain enough of your trust to cause you to fall for just one of his lies. The devil will tell you the truth in order to get you to fall for the lie that is to come next. So Satan himself, the demons of hell, they will speak truths if ultimately they'll be successful in following up with lies that will deceive you. So nothing about this was good. Paul knew it. Silas knew it. Luke knew it. Timothy knew it. And that's why Paul, when he had had it up to here of hearing it, he turned and told her to shut up and demanded that the demon leave her. And the moment that the demon left her, I believe she became a follower of Christ. Now notice verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Keep this in mind, that sometimes conversion to Christ does not bring uh, rejoicing only. Oftentimes it'll bring conflict. And here it's going to do that. Keep in mind that everywhere Paul went, that the preaching of the gospel brought either a revival or a riot or sometimes both. These men were angry about it. Verse 20, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Wasn't a very pleasurable experience of these men, but you see the consequences. You see the price that they paid for preaching the gospel. Well, a demonized girl. She was the second convert in this city. She had a tormented heart. Lydia had a tender heart towards God. This girl had a tormented heart, and God saved her also. Convert number three is a dangerous jailer. We read about his story beginning actually in verse 24, where it says that he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This dangerous jailer was a man with a tough heart. Now, before we read the verses about him, keep this in mind. Do you remember about Roman jailers? Most often, these were ex-soldiers 
of the Roman army. They, they were hardened men. They had seen battles and survived battles, oftentimes wounded, but, but surviving in faraway lands. They were the toughest fighting men that the world knew. They were the best trained. They were the best equipped from head to toe. We read about that armor in Ephesians chapter 6. They were trained to mark off mentally a six-foot by six-foot square on the ground and to stand in that square and to defend it against the world. And their comrade would be another six feet or so away from them to this direction and to this direction. And oftentimes, as the hordes of other armies would come to fight against them, they would be found by the dozens around the feet of a single Roman soldier who wielded a shield and a short sword with which he could literally, practically control the world, at least the world of his 36 square feet. These men were the toughest of the tough. The position as a jailer was often a reward for faithful service and good leadership. They not only kept the jail, part of their responsibility was to inflict the sentence, to inflict and beat and torture those who were inside. And sometimes their living quarters in some cities was directly above the jail, which appears to be the case at Philippi. Now, with that in mind, we take up reading in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. That would have been his sentence, by the way, for allowing his prisoners to escape. He would have to pay the price. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling, trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. He and all his family noticed the obedience and the identity with God and his people through baptism. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. You see the hospitality he showed like Lydia. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. There was worship taking place in this new convert's heart 
and in his family's home. Lydia, a determined businesswoman with a tender heart, she needed salvation. This demonized girl, she was in desperate need also of salvation. She had a tormented heart, and God saved her. Then you have this dangerous jailer, a man with a tough heart. How desperately he needed salvation, and God saved him. Let me draw this to a close by giving you four truths and four application points. I hope you'll write these down. Four conclusions. Number one, the gospel is God's truth for all people in all walks of life. It wasn't a different gospel for Lydia than it was for the jailer, than it was for the demon-possessed girl. It was the same gospel. It is one message. It is God's truth for all people. There's not a truth for Muslims. There's not a truth for uh, Hindus. There's not a truth for Buddhists and then a truth for Americans or Westerners. You can't find your truth, although the world today tells you you need to discover your own truth. I'm going to tell you anything besides God's truth is a lie. It's a lie. There's one truth, God's truth, for all people in all walks of life. Tender-hearted, torment-hearted, or tough-hearted, one gospel. Conclusion number two. The gospel creates a new community unlike anything else before. This is a very unlikely trio with which to start a church. <laughs> a Gentile woman, a business, successful businesswoman, a demon, formerly demon-possessed teenage girl, and a rough and tumble ex Marine, Roman soldier, tough guy. But from this, a new community is formed and it becomes the church that Paul finds his greatest joy in, the Philippian church. We'll conclude our series on the church of Christ next Sunday by talking about that. It creates a new community. You don't believe that? Read sometimes Romans chapter 16 where 29 different people at Rome are named. And if you go into a study of all those names, some are aristocrats, some are bureaucrats, some are slaves, some are Gentiles, some are Jews, some are former heathens, all walks of life, but the gospel brings them all together. And I want to tell you, except for the gospel, there is nothing that would bring this exact congregation to this place today. Not politics, not some common interest in the world, not our favorite sports team, only Christ would bring this group of people as a new community to this place as a church in the eyes of Jesus Christ today. Truth number three, God has a way of doing the unexpected 
to accomplish his work. You, you find his providence all through this story of Acts chapter 16. Always the unexpected. Always not the way man would have done it, but the way God did it. And number four, listen to this one. Suffering for Christ doesn't diminish the power of the gospel. It magnifies its influence. Suffering on the part of Paul and Silas, being beaten with rods, being thrown in the inner chamber of the dungeon, their feet in stocks. Understand, if they had known that was going to be the consequence of going to Philippi, these men would have gone anyway. You and I spend untold amounts of energy, emotionally and physically, to avoid any kind of suffering, especially any kind of suffering for taking a stand for Christ. But understand it is through suffering that we see the power of God not diminished, but we see it magnified and put on display as we find it here in the book of Acts 16. Now here's four action steps. Here's what I want to speak to those of you right now. Listen very closely to me. Because some of you feel like you're in the inner chamber of some kind of prison this morning. You feel like your feet are in stocks. It is past midnight. And you don't know how you're going to see the next sunrise come your way. For some of you, that, that um, suffering, that inner chain, chamber, may be a bleak financial situation that you can't seem to get beyond. It may be a grim health diagnosis that you're not going to get any better. It may be a hopeless family situation or marriage. It may be an unrelenting emotional struggle, your battle with worry, with fear, with some hurt or someone inflicted on you sometime in the past. It could be a thousand different circumstances or prisons but understand this, it's real, it's dark, and it seems hopeless. And you're wondering, what is in this passage for me? I want you to know, like Paul and Silas, there are some steps you can take. Number one, start praying. Start praying. Verse 25, uh, the beginning of verse 25 says about midnight, Paul and Silas were Praying. You may be saying right now, well, I've done that, preacher. I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and nothing changed and I've prayed till I'm blue in the face and I'm done with that praying. Well, in that case, start praying again. Communion with God is never a hurtful thing. These men's backs were lacerated bloody. They were a swollen mess of ripped human flesh. We can just imagine the pain sitting in a dark, smelly, rat and roach infested dungeon. And in that place, they bore a strong testimony 
to the wonderful grace of God, they prayed. And other prisoners heard them. I'm convinced they didn't just pray for themselves, that they did not pray for deliverance, that they did not pray for an earthquake, that they did not pray that the magistrates would look kindly on them at the time of their trials. They prayed for the men around them. They prayed for the glory of God. They prayed. But listen, listen, being limited to prayer is not a limitation. It's the most powerful, mighty weapon you have. You're in the prisoner in the prison at midnight. Start praying. Number two, sing praises. They not only prayed. Verse twenty-five says they sang praises. They sang the hymns and the psalms of the Old Testament. You know what those were? Those were the psalms. They sang praises to God despite their dismal situation. They were praying and singing as other prisoners who had no song to sing could hear. Did they feel like worshiping? Probably not. They were likely, act, uh, li- likely aching, tired, and scared, but they were determined to give God glory, and they trust their trust was completely in Him and in the situation. Maybe they were remembering the words of Jesus that they had heard the other apostles teach when Jesus said, "Blessed are you when people insult you." persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. For great is your reward in heaven. They sang praises. This radical response to worship was a decision of their will. No matter what our circumstances, we can choose to praise God. And to base our worship together Our gathering together on Sunday mornings for worship and to study the Word together, to base that on how you feel, to base that on what attitude you happen to be in any given Sunday is an awful thing. You need to base it on obedience. What is God telling you to do? So start praying, sing praises, number three. Get ready for this one. Stay put. Stay put. Now, we've read other miraculous prison breaks in the book of Acts, have we not? Acts chapter 5, the apostles are imprisoned, and the Lord miraculously unlocks the gates, and an angel leads them out, and they are set free, and they take that opportunity. Then Acts chapter 12, Peter's in prison, and again, an angel shows up. Maybe it was the same angel. And he opened the uh, gates, the prison bars for Peter. And he experienced a miraculous deliverance at the hand of God. But on this occasion, it was different. Rather than escape, Paul and Silas stayed right in their cells and somehow persuaded the rest of the prisoners to do the same thing. There's no doubt that this was just as much a miracle. There was no angel mentioned, but, but the earthquake unlocked the prison doors 
And the earthquake unlocked their shackles. <laughs> that's, that's pretty amazing. But understand this. God's intent on this occasion was not the physical deliverance of Paul and Silas. It was on the spiritual deliverance of the jailer and his family. Did you hear that? God's goal on this occasion was not the physical deliverance of his servants. It was the spiritual deliverance of a man who was in a far more dangerous prison, the prison of his sins. Keep this in mind. You may be in your midnight prison today, not because of anything you've done, not because of any justice or punishment God is inflicting on you. You may be in your prison because of what God is going to do in someone else's life around you. Someone who is watching, someone who is listening, someone who may even be the person inflicting the pain on you. What is our motivation when in a prison? It is to escape. Bail on that marriage. Run away from it. Leave that job and find another one. Change churches. Surely there's a better one somewhere. Or just quit on God altogether. Those are the things we do to run from our prisons. But keep this in mind. God is not only working on you, he is working in the lives of others who are watching you. It may be that you're faithful, please excuse the word, stick-to-itiveness may be the very thing that is that person's last, best hope of salvation. What's a temporary test for you may make an eternal difference for someone else. I have a dear friend, pastor friend. I'll just refer to him as John. That is his real name, but I don't need to give you the rest of it. Years ago, he went to pastor a small church in East Texas. Now, folks, listen to me. There are more Baptists in East Texas than there are people. There's a church behind every tree. And there's a preacher under every rock. It's where some of them ought to stay. He went to this little fussing, feuding group of people because it was a place to preach while he went to seminary in Jacksonville. But his plan was, as soon as seminary is over, I'll move on from here. He went to that little fussing, feuding church. And he put up with their fussing and their feuding and he preached the word and he was faithful. And he graduated from seminary and he stayed a while longer and there were other opportunities and one particular opportunity came along that was especially attractive to him. A great church in a great city and he so, so struggled with the decision to go. 
But John was not the kind just to presume that an open door is always from God. And you need to keep that in mind. Just because there are opportunities in front of you does not mean that God is the author of them. And he prayed about this decision, and he prayed about it. And he said, Kirk, I came to the place that I felt like what God was saying to my spirit was that it's okay to go if that's what you and your wife would like to do. But if you decide to stay here in this place, I will bless you. I will bless you. Two Sundays ago, that church, that very same little church, celebrated John's 50th anniversary as their pastor. It's the only church he's ever pastored. And when he went there for I don't know how long, it felt like a prison sentence to him. He felt like his feet were in the stocks. And finally, when the earthquake came and the bars were set free and the shackles were set free and he had the opportunity to go, what did he do? He stayed put. And that church today is a great church and one that would be an honor and a privilege for anyone to go and be its pastor. What do you do when it's midnight and you're in the prison? Start praying. Sing praises. Stay put. And number four, get ready. Start preaching. Start preaching. Let your circumstances serve as your pulpit. The Apostle Paul had a message and an opportunity for this jailer that he would have never had had he run. But he was now able to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called him out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he sets a pattern for you and me to pray, to give praises, to stay put and be patient through our circumstances and let God open the door for witness and for preaching the gospel in a way that will change people's lives. Well, there's an epilogue to this story in the remaining verses, but we'll not go there at this time. Uh, before leaving town, Paul and his companions spent some time at Lydia's house. That evidently becomes the location for this church in Philippi. It's going to meet in her home, and it will for the foreseeable future. Now, you may be wondering, why have I named this Last two weeks' message is the church you've always wanted. It seems like that title doesn't have anything to do with what you said about these three people being saved. Well, we'll answer that next week. All right? A determined businesswoman with a tender heart. A demonized girl with a tormented heart. A dangerous jailer with a tough heart. And the Lord Jesus saved them all and started a church. Let's read our scripture together. Would, would you read it with me? Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. 
So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for it. May we be a faithful church. May we be a hospital for those who have hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Help them find healing. Father, help us to be a battleship, to sail into dangerous waters and put ourselves at risk in order to share the gospel with others. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.